Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so first of all, uh, sorry about the plane ride today. That's right. Sorry for my uh, delay about 10 minutes late here, but thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so it, it, I want to start because I was telling the story on stage you are the first of the presidential candidates to note the issues of DEI, ESG, and this horrible situation in Hawaii, the absolute madness of some of the public officials. So look, I think we see this in one disaster after another, each of which are symptoms of a deeper problem. In the Maui case, let's talk about what actually led to those disastrous deaths. This is a hard truth because this is a sensitive situation. My heart goes out to the people who are suffering in Maui. Helping them, I think, is one of our most important objectives. I think it's, frankly, shameful that we have a U.S. president that has not physically been present there, let alone providing the level of aid that I think is required to help residents there, which is now the most important issue. But if we don't learn from our mistakes, we're destined to make them again. There was an Obama appointee climate change activist who also believes as part of this broader Gaia-centric worldview of the earth that water rights need to be protected, which led to a five to six hour delay in the critical window of getting waters to put out those fires. And we will never know, although certain signs point to the fact that we very well could have avoided those catastrophic deaths, many of them, if water had made it to the site of the fires on time. And and I bring this up because we are destined to repeat our mistakes again unless we learn from the ones we have already made. Take the disaster in public education. Now we have black kids who don't score as well as white kids or Asian kids in school, and we're coming up with the truism that math is racist. When in fact, what really might have been inequitable, racist, pick your favorite word, is the fact that in the midst of the COVID pandemic, not fires this time, but a different catastrophe, we again made disastrous decisions to systematically close public schools, especially in poor regions, while private schools and others were able to remain open. And so I think what we often see is the rise of wokeness, whether it is in our public schools whether it's in the military, whether it's in foreign aid, whether it's in domestic aid, it really is a deflection. It's kind of what I call a woke smoke to deflect accountability for actual underlying failures in those institutions. And I think that we as conservatives, and I'm not criticizing anybody else here but myself, to be honest with you, I have written books. I wrote Woke Inc. back when many people... Most people in our movement had never heard that word. I think there was a time and place for focusing on the problem. But I think it's also important right now, though, that we don't get too fixated on any one of the poisons, wokeness or anything else. We've done that. For a long time, we have been running from something. 
I think, though, now is actually our moment as conservatives to start running to something, to our vision of what it actually means to be an American. That's how we're actually going to win. Not even taking this one official and hammering him into the ground and blaming him and holding him out at the stake. He's just a symptom of a deeper void of purpose and meaning in our country. And when you don't have real faith or real patriotism or real family or real hard work, you're going to resort to climate activism and water rights instead. And I think the work that we have to do, it's why I'm in this race, frankly, Eric, is I think that we have to fill that vacuum with our vision of what it means to be a citizen of this nation, do it without apology. And that is how we will dilute these woke agendas to irrelevance. And this is our moment to look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves, do we have it in us to go beyond just criticizing those endless hypocrisies on the other side, as I and others have done, and now level up and say that we're actually offering an affirmative vision of our own. And I think that's our task in the next year and a half. This is the perfect setup for the question I've asked everybody who's come. You've got a former president, a former vice president, sitting governors and senators and others. Why should people vote for you for president of the United States? So look, I think the first thing I will say to preface that question with is, it is my job in this race to tell everybody who I am and what I stand for. And, and if everybody in this country knows that by the end of this race and they decide to go with somebody else, I am very much at peace with that decision. That is the system working as it should. I'm skeptical that's how our system works. We have a lot of influences that create layers of distortion, but it is my job to make sure that I've done my best to make sure everybody knows. Now, in that spirit, I'll tell you who I am and what I stand for. My parents came to this country with no money 40 years ago. I've gone on to found multi-billion dollar companies. I did it while marrying my wife, Apoorva, raising our two sons, following our faith in God. That's the American dream. And I am genuinely worried that that American dream will not exist for my two sons and their generation unless we, not just me, all of us, step up to actually do something about it. I think that we have an interesting debate in the GOP right now, and I think it's a good debate. There are other fellow patriots who will be on that debate stage. I'm not taking swings at them. I will defend myself if necessary, but I'm not in this race to view them as my competitors. I view them as my colleagues. I view you all as my colleagues in this national revival. But I do think we face a choice to address your question. I think the choice we actually face in this primary is, do you want incremental reform? If that's what you want, you'd be better served going with somebody else who came from within the system. Do you want incremental reform? Or do you want revolution? I stand on the side of the American Revolution. I stand on the side of reviving those 1776 ideals that set this nation into motion. And I, and I deeply care about national unity, but there are two different, very different theories of national unity. One is that we show up in the middle. We reach compromise, hold hands with our friends on the other side, bridge over our differences by compromising, meet in the middle, sing kumbaya and move on. I, I don't believe in that model of national unity. 
I think the way we get to national unity is by actually embracing the radicalism, the extremism of the American founding ideals themselves. Free speech, open debate, self-governance, the idea that we the people create a government that is accountable to us, not the other way around. Self-governance over aristocracy, the rule of law, the unbridled pursuit of excellence and meritocracy that you get ahead in this country, not on the color of your skin, but on the content of your character and your contributions without anybody stopping you on the way. These are radical ideals. These are extreme ideals. For most of human history, it has been done the other way. And so, no, I don't think that moderation is our answer. I think embracing the radical ideals that unite us across Americans is actually the true answer. And I say this as a member of my generation. You're right. I have far less experience in government than any other candidate. Now, I've built multi-billion dollar enterprises. I've hired and fired thousands of people. I am 38 years old. I think I'm best positioned to reach the next generation of young Americans, actually. For me, the start line is... January, it was November 2024. That's not the destination. That's the start line. The finish line is January 2033. When I leave office, what do I want to tell you that I achieved? My older son, he won't even be in high school by then. I want to create a country for him that's not the same, that is greater than even the great country that we grew up in. And I don't believe in making false promises, but there's a few things I know I can get done as the next U.S. president. When I'm leaving office in January 2033, I am confident that I will tell you that we once again in the United States of America have three branches of government, not four. That we shut down the administrative state and the federal bureaucracy that sucks the lifeblood out of our constitutional republic. I am confident I will tell you in January 2033 that we are no longer dependent on our adversary, communist China, for our modern way of life. I believe that is achievable. It is not as difficult as we make it out to be. I believe I will tell you that our economy is once again growing at the fastest rate in the developed world because we embrace capitalism again rather than apologizing for it. That is who we are. And because we'll all be making more money then, I think that will make it easier for me to tell you that my two sons and their generation, that they are once again proud to be citizens of this nation. I believe that is possible. I believe we don't have to be a nation in decline. I think we just might yet be in our ascent. I hope in the early stages of our ascent, actually. And it just might take a person who, I don't know what tomorrow holds, I can't know for sure, but I hope and pray that my best days are still yet ahead of me, that there's still a long journey still yet ahead for me in my life. And if that's true, it just might take somebody who's in that position, whose best days may still yet be ahead, to see a nation whose best days are still yet ahead of itself. And I believe it deep in my bones that is true. I believe that I will be able to convince young Americans 
of the same thing. I believe it is my duty to pass on that dream to the next generation, to make concepts like faith and family and patriotism and hard work cool again, actually, for young Americans. These aren't antiquated values. This is the stuff of progress. <laughs> and if that makes us progressives in our own sense towards that vision, then so be it. And I just think it might take somebody. I think it probably will take somebody coming in from the outside, coming in from truly a new generation to deliver that actual vision. When the left is feeding young kids race, gender, sexuality, and climate, we can't just complain about that vision. We have to offer our own, grounded in the individual, the family, the nation, God. Individual, family, nation, God, that beats race, gender, sexuality, and climate if we have the courage and the spine to actually stand up for these values and win or lose. That's what I'm doing in this race. And if that's what the people of this country want to see in their next leader, then yes, I will be leading a national revival for the eight years that come after. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm still... I'm... Like, gosh, he's not just younger than me. He's like a decade younger than me. This is just, oh. <laughs> but, you know, okay, so in that regard, I mean, it, it does open you up from the opposite side of, of Joe Biden is ancient of days. That How are you going to respond to the people who say, well, you might just be too young to run for president? You know, I, I accept that question. <laughs> I think it's a legit. I mean, we're, we're talking about a very serious question here. This is a job interview of eight seven, eight good people, whatever it'll be, starting next week. And, you know, I think that there are legitimate questions to ask of who is somebody too old to be president. I actually think not. I think there are plenty of older people who are sharper than many people my age and, and may still yet have their best days ahead of them. And so... Just to be clear, that's not the president. That's just. not Joe Biden. But I, that's, that, that, well, I mean, the, the deeper problem with Joe Biden is he's not really even the person running the country. I truly believe that. It is the managerial class wielding him as a puppet. Right? And so I think that's the deeper reason. You don't hear me talking that much about Joe Biden. I don't believe I will be running against Joe Biden in the general election. I'll be running against somebody else. And so I think it's a sort of form of a feigned retreat to sort of lead us to criticize one man for his age or his failures when the deeper problem is the cancer that sits underneath him, that we have to open our eyes and actually see that truth in order to get to the other side of it. But back to your question about, am I too young? I don't think so. If I did, I wouldn't be in this race. But I'll remind you that I'm in this race to revive those 1776 ideals of this country. Well, who wrote those 1776 ideals on a page? Thomas Jefferson, when he signed that Declaration of Independence, he was five years younger than me right now. He was 33 years old. <laughs> By the way, funny thing about Thomas Jefferson is while he's writing the Declaration of Independence... The guy feels like he needs a swivel chair to rotate in. So he says, I'm going to invent the swivel chair too. The swivel <laughs> chair that we sit on today was literally invented by Thomas Jefferson while he was writing the Declaration of Independence. Alexander Hamilton, nine years younger than him. Benjamin Franklin, co-signer of that document, invented the Franklin stove, the bifocal spectacles. Invited actually one of the first remedies for the common cold. These guys were born in an era where there's something else different in the water. They didn't say you had to be an expert. You weren't trained as a swivel chair 
inventor. And so you can't do that. You're not an expert in that. He said, no, I'm going to do what I need to do because I'm an American. I'm an explorer. We are the pioneers. We are the explorers, the people who will say, nothing's going to stop me from achieving my maximal God-given potential. In fact, I have a duty to use my God-given potential to make the greatest possible contribution I can right now because life is short. Our time on this earth is brief. There is more to life than the aimless passage of time. And so we have a purpose. God put us here for a purpose to realize our maximal greatest contribution in the short time we are given. And so, no, I don't believe that it's my job to just wait my turn in some bureaucracy. Even my wife and I, we, we reflected on this. Say, should we wait 20 years when our sons are out of the house, when we might have some more experience? The truth is, I don't think we have 20 years left as a country if we just passively stand by and watch. And I think the truth is, 20 years from now, I don't think I'm going to be as effective in reaching a Gen Z where only 16% of them say they're proud to be American, where 60% of them say they would sooner give up their right to vote than to give up their access to TikTok. I'm not making that up. Those are hard statistics today. And so, no, I don't think at the age of 60 or 70, I'm going to be able to fix that problem nearly as effectively as I am as a member of my generation. And you know what? If Thomas Jefferson could do it at the age of 33 and we're taking our inspiration from our forefathers to revive those ideals that we've forgotten, then it might just take somebody else who was a contemporary in age to be able to do the same thing at this moment for our nation to take it forward. That's what I believe, and that is your choice, not mine. Twice now, you just mentioned, and I'm glad you did, um, the managerial class. We do seem to have, and yesterday I described it as, we have an elite who have now, they're almost legacies, where the original elite got there by being successful and making good decisions. Now we have these people who lack humility, constantly get it wrong, and yet they're at the level they pull all the strings from New York to Boston, they drive, they ride on the Acela, and they want to shape policy for all 350 million of us, and they lack the humility to even acknowledge when they get it wrong, and yet these are the managers, the Brahmin class of America. Yes, sir. I think it's really, it's really important to put our finger on this pulse. I think this is the real divide in our country today. It is not between black and white. It is not even really between Democrat and Republican. It is between the managerial class and the citizen. Between the Great Reset and what I call the Great Uprising. What's really going on in the country is that it's a horizontal managerial class. The same people who are the undersecretary of God knows what working in the back office of a three-letter government agency in Washington, D.C. are functionally similar to the associate dean of God knows what at some second-rate university. Some person who's actually sitting professionally on four boards of directors to collect paychecks for sitting of the passive tense of that word, sitting in a board meeting. You're going to think about the same person who gets a department of the be the diplomat or ambassador of whatever to an Eastern European nation. It is that horizontal managerial class that is fundamentally distrustful of the citizenry of a country. And this is actually what the American Revolution was about. The American Revolution was about the idea that for better or worse, we the people 
settle our differences. What would they say today on climate change or racial injustice? Through free speech and open debate in the public square, where every citizen's voice and vote counts equally. And old world Europe, they were skeptical of that vision. They said, no, no, no. The people can't be trusted. How could they? They'd get it wrong. We, the elites, have to make that decision in the back of palace halls in old world England, church leaders, labor leaders, business leaders, deciding what's right as the enlightened for the rest of society at large. And we fought a revolution to reject that vision that say, no, 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 on this side of the Atlantic, on this side of 1776, we don't do it that way. Well, that old world monster rears its ugly head ever so often as it does today to once again say that, no, 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 we the people can't be trusted, that it has to be settled in the back of palace halls, be that a three-letter government bureaucratic office in Washington, D.C., or be that a palace hall in the corner office of Black Rock's building on Park Avenue in Manhattan. That's what the ESG movement's really about. And I think that's why we live in a 1776 moment today. Like Thomas Jefferson or John Jay, it's a special time to be alive, actually. To be able to ask the question of, do we trust ourselves as the citizens? Do we actually expect a government to tell us the truth instead of serving us a noble lie? That's really what the modern divide in this country is about. And when you divide it up that way, the good news is it's not 80-20. It's not 50-50. I was going to say it's not even 80-20. It's easily 80-20 in our direction. Half the 20 are people younger than me who never learned those American ideals in the first place. That presents us an opportunity to win this election, not in a razor-thin 50.1 margin. And I think it is critical that this not be another 50.1 tug of war where you know, CNN announces the election winner the Monday after the election. I think that is not going to be good for this country. I think we are skating on very thin ice right now. But I think that we have an opportunity. We don't talk about Republicans and Democrats. And you know, for those of you who have been following my campaign so far, I, I really don't. I don't think that's the major divide. But if we talk about it in terms of whether you're pro-American or anti-American, do you believe in the will of the citizen or do you believe in ceding authority to the managerial class? That is 80-20 in our direction. And we have an opportunity to deliver for this country what Ronald Reagan did in 1980 and then again in 1984. I think it will take a landslide moral mandate to not only reunite this country, but to reignite the values that set this country into motion. I think that opportunity is hiding in plain sight. The difference between a 50.1 election and a landslide, by the way, is young people. We have, I, I never had a political donor in my life, never run for office, but we've got you know, 70, 80,000 some odd donors right now. 40,000 was the threshold for the debate stage. 40% of them are first time ever donors to the GOP in any form. That's 2% for a normal Republican. This is good. <laughs> this is an opportunity. Most of them are young, actually. To say with authority, to call the bluff on partisan division, which I, I do think that if you watch it on TV or get it on social media, it seems stark. If you show up to a bunch of farmers in northwest Iowa or go 50-mile radius of where I live in central Ohio or for that matter where we are right now and talk to the human beings who populate the place, even go to the south side of Chicago or Kensington in the middle of Philadelphia 
where I've been, where even, forget Republican politicians, Democratic politicians won't even go. <laughs> what you find is that I've never been in a room that was more vehemently in favor of my proposal to militarize the southern border than that 99% all-black, supposedly Democrat room on the south side of Chicago because they're turning South Shore High School into an encampment for migrants. $7,000 per month per migrant where people in that community rightly ask, what about me? When I go to Kensington, people who are frustrated by the fact that the so-called aid programs are literally handing out crack pipes and needles to people who are already addicted to crack pipes and needles. And so, no, I don't think we live in a moment where Republicans and Democrats are really the ones fighting it out in the streets of America. I think much of that division is manufactured by a managerial elite that, yes, would rather blow that woke smoke to cover accountability for their own failures to help the very people they profess to help. Call it out that way. I think we win this election in a landslide. That is what I expect to deliver. Let me... Some of the broader issues out there now, I've, I've tried to ask this question to, to all the candidates. I, I didn't get to it with Christy, who, who answered it himself. But given your business background, I'm actually curious your, your answer. As you know, there are things, whether it's in business, foreign policy, domestic policy, that you don't even know you don't know. Where do you, either from, from business or you're president of the United States, how do you begin exploring the world and turning over the rocks to figure out the knowledge we need to acquire to even understand situations we don't know about yet. So, I mean, there's the tactics, of course, but I think it starts with humility. And where do I get my humility? My humility comes from faith. If you believe in God, the one thing you know is that I am not God. Okay, and there's only one all-knowing power, that's God, and that's not me. It's my wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, she... She, she, I, I got to give her credit. She, maybe a little more than you, I would say, if, if you're wise. But, but she's taught you something if you're wise enough to know that. Yes. <laughs> and, and you know what? In, in all truth, it starts with God, and then it starts with family, actually. It, it, joking aside, I think I do derive a lot of the humility from my wife, who is a leader in her own way, in her own unique world. After I traveled for three days on the campaign trail, we got home at about uh, 10.30 p.m. last night, then you know, headed out this morning to be here today, but we had a few short hours last night, this morning together. And I heard about her struggle and accomplishment of this week, which related to the 12 cases that she did as a throat surgeon at Ohio State while being a mother taking care of our two sons while I'm on the campaign trail trying to do all my part for reviving this nation. And so, you know, even when I go home, do I look at her and say that, hey, what I'm doing is more important for our entire family. Far from it. Each of us has a contribution to make in our own way. Could I be possibly making the contribution that she's making every day? No, I cannot. And in some ways, that's the way I look at the presidency. We can fall into the trap of believing that that's the most important role. And it's going to be an audition to who's going to be the Messiah coming from on high from the White House on down to save the country. I don't believe it works that way. I think each of us has a role to play. <laughs> the truth is I'm not letting you all off the hook that easily either. <laughs> right? I'm still going to depend on you as you will depend on me to each play our role in our national revival. So, so when it comes to the presidency, what's the president do? 
The president runs the executive branch of the government. I do believe that I have a deeper understanding of how to actually shut down the administrative state and the parts of it that should not exist. Probably the best understanding that anybody's brought to that office in the last 30 years of anyone who's run because it takes a combination of, yes, being an outsider who's been a CEO, who knows that if somebody works for you and you can't fire them, that means they don't work for you. It means you work for them and you're responsible for what they do. I've fired underperformers in the private sector. I'm going to do it for probably 75% of the people who work as federal bureaucrats in the government in Washington, D.C. But it takes an outsider to do it, also an outsider who knows something about the laws and constitution of the country. That's also very important. They told Trump you couldn't do it because of the civil service protections. Well, read the law. The civil service protections apply to individual firings. They do not apply to mass layoffs. And mass layoffs are absolutely what I'm bringing to the D.C. bureaucracy. So that's my job, right? But I'm not going to be able to lead that national revival alone. I'm going to do my job. Do that. Lead us to economic independence from China. Drill, frack, burn coal, roll back the federal regulations that stop us from growing our economy. Those are the things that are in my court. If you all put me in that job, that's my job to do. But what's the job of people across this country to do as parents? You know what? To give your kids the ultimate privilege that I had in this country. We bandy that word around a lot. <laughs> privilege. I, I didn't grow up in money. But I did grow up with the ultimate privilege. Two parents in the house with a focus on education and instilling in us a faith in God. That is the privilege that Apoorva and I try to give our two sons. As president, I would love to give that privilege to every kid in this country. I could do my part to shut down the Department of Education and get them out of the way. But I'm not going to be able to do that without other patriots as parents stepping up to do their part in the country as well. And so back to your question, it's not that even, there are certain things I don't know how to do that, yes, we will have to have the humility to hire other good people to do. But part of it's the humility of knowing that there are things the U.S. president by definition cannot do. In fact, we should not even want the president taking principal responsibility for. I'm a Tenth Amendment absolutist. That which is not reserved to the federal government belongs to the states and respectively to the people. And so I think that humility is actually what's going to be required for our national revival. And, you know, I think that that's something I'm grateful to, to my wife, to my family, to my parents for instilling in me. And I think that that will be an important gift for the people around me who, who and as I assume the presidency, if I'm successfully elected, to make sure that I don't fall into the trap that many presidents may be tempted to fall into in believing in a certain hubris that I think will lead me to be less successful. So let me ask you, you, you mentioned China, and we should spend a few minutes here on foreign policy. I, I know because pretty much every one of your opponents made sure everyone in America wanted to see last week, somewhat taken out of context, your remarks on China and Taiwan. And I, but I do want to ask you about that in larger, the larger issue there of China and this sense among our managerial class, it seems that they're about to be dominant. We might as well like let them. Um, yeah. there doesn't seem to be any sort of like real, I don't know, inertia moving in Washington to deal with the issue. But and if you would, please, uh, if you want to talk about the remarks about China and Taiwan uh, and, and how you see that situation. Sure. And this is something I've been writing about for years over the course of 
you know, the three books I've written, and I think this is certainly the most important foreign policy objective for the next U.S. president, to declare economic independence from China, to deter China from going after Taiwan for so long as we rely on Taiwan for our semiconductors while avoiding war in the process. That'll be a major accomplishment of the next U.S. president, and it will not be simple. Now, the context actually matters. Let's go back to the 1990s. They sometimes say the worst ideas in Washington are bipartisan. I think sometimes that's, that's true. We had a bipartisan consensus dating back to the 1990s that we were somehow going to export Big Macs and Happy Meals, and that was going to spread democracy to places like China. That we thought we could use our money, our investment, to get them to be more like us. What they realized is that they could use their money, access to their market, to actually get us to be more like them. It's actually one step better than that for them. They used our money to get us to be more like them. And that's really what happened. It turned capitalism, in air quotes, it's not really capitalism, it's mercantilism, into a Trojan horse to undermine the United States from within, telling BlackRock or Nike or J.P. Morgan, hey, you had to come into the Chinese market if you praise the CCP and do our geopolitical bidding around the world. But... We'll roll out the red carpet. We'll build a great Chinese wall and say you can't if you criticize the CCP, but we'll roll out the red carpet if you actually criticize the United States. If you're Chevron, apply those carbon emissions in the United States. But if you're BlackRock and you're voting for those same carbon emissions at PetroChina, show yourself the door. So that's the game that's been played for 30 years, and we are where we are. And the fact is, among other things, we're dependent on a tiny, tiny island nation off the southeast coast of China for our modern way of life. Semiconductors. And the hard truth, now speak some hard truths, that's what this campaign's about, speaking the truth. We have no basis to be confident that we would win a naval war with China in the South China Sea because of disastrous policies dating back for the last 20 years. So this makes for the next job to be, of the next U.S. president to be very difficult. So what I've said is, look, I'm going to go over my foreign policy in a whirlwind here because it's all connected. First thing I would do is end the Ukraine war. I will end the Ukraine war on terms that advance American interests, specifically freeze the current lines of control like a Korean War armistice agreement, make a hard commitment that NATO will not admit Ukraine to NATO. And I know not everyone in this audience will agree with me on that, and that's okay. But I want to be clear about why. This will require, as a condition for that deal, Vladimir Putin to exit his military alliance with China. And the Russia-China military alliance is the top threat that we face today. Hypersonic missile capabilities, nuclear capabilities in Russia's hands ahead of the U.S., combined with China's naval capacity ahead of the U.S., and an economy that we depend on for our modern way of life. That alliance is a problem. I gave a speech at the Nixon Library a couple nights ago. Why did I pick the Nixon Library? This is a reverse maneuver of what Nixon did with Mao. Did we trust Mao Zedong? No, we did not. But we trusted him to follow his self-interest because he did not enjoy being Brezhnev's little brother. Well, Putin does not enjoy being Xi Jinping's little brother. This is our moment to pull apart the Russia-China alliance. That is the number one deterrent for China going after Taiwan. Why? Because Xi Jinping's calculus right now is that the U.S. will not want to go to war with two different allied nuclear superpowers at the same time. But if Vladimir Putin's no longer in his camp, then she is going to have to think twice. Now let's get India on side. I would do a broad deal with India. Commitments, maybe give them a deal like we've given to 
Chile or Australia. India would salivate for that deal in terms of economic partnership. That allows us to further reduce dependency on China for our supply chains, Apple on down. That's a good thing. But it further allows India to have more money to be able to invest in its own naval capacity to block the Malacca Strait, the Andaman Sea, which China gets most of its Middle Eastern oil supplies through. If China knows India would block the Andaman Sea in the context of a conflict, Xi Jinping will have to think twice before going after Taiwan. I'm a big fan of ideological exports of the United States. People laugh at this one. I don't mean this as a joke. Turning Taiwan into part of what military strategists call the porcupine strategy, part of that is make the Second Amendment an export to Taiwan. Give them an opportunity to say they'll adopt a Second Amendment, which actually frightens China quite a bit. Putting a gun in every Taiwanese household, training them how to use it. That will make Xi Jinping think twice before going after Taiwan. And then I top that off with moving us from strategic ambiguity to strategic clarity on Taiwan. These are words you're not supposed to articulate. Even gesticulating the syllables, the utterances of them, invite criticisms from traditional views on foreign policy. But I think we live in the 21st century. I believe in reviving Nixonian realism to actually secure peace. Here's what I'll say. We will, we will not be ambiguous about this. Right now we have strategic ambiguity. I'm going to go to strategic clarity and say we will defend Taiwan until we have semiconductor independence in this country, which is where I will lead us by the end of my first term in office. After which point our commitments, by definition, will and should change. Now, combined with all of that, Xi Jinping would have to be a fool to go after Taiwan before we've achieved semiconductor independence. Keep in mind, he has two motivations. One is he wants to squat on the semiconductor supply chain to hold an economic gun to our head. And I am not okay with that, just as I am not okay with a Chinese spy balloon flying over half our land, just as I'm not okay with a Chinese spy base sitting off the coast of Cuba, just as I'm not okay with Chinese-made fentanyl coming through the hands of Mexican drug cartels through our southern border, killing 50 times the number of people who died on 9-11 due to die this year of Chinese-made fentanyl crossing our southern border. It's a modern Monroe doctrine. You don't mess with us on our own soil, and you do not hold an economic gun to our head. So no, we will stand up with the spine with strategic clarity, not ambiguity. And I think that that is credible. That makes sense. But the, 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 the tougher part of that, but I believe we have to say this out loud to get our objectives really in securing peace and advancing our interests, is that our commitments may change after we've achieved semiconductor independence, which puts Taiwan on notice that it has to spend not one point something percent on its, of its GDP on defense, that's a joke. For Taiwan to be spending that little, they need to be at 4 or 5% of GDP. This puts them on notice to get their act together in order. Maybe even notice ahead of their 2024 election over there, whether it's the KMT or somebody else that wins in Taiwan, let them have the debate about what their GDP spending needs to be. And I think that this is, some, this is the way that we're going to find our path forward in the 21st century to being, yes, the leading nation on earth economically and otherwise by moving from the model of fake liberal hegemony to a model of actual realism, a model of actual nationalism grounded in a modern Monroe doctrine that says we're going to actually defend the homeland and our interests of the homeland. That's what the next phase and next chapter of American foreign policy ought to look like. And, and I'm frankly shocked 
that I am the only person in either political party right now, actually, that has embraced that vision. I think George Bush famously said it in a debate about 20 years ago. What did he say? I will listen to my generals when asked about some question he didn't know the answer to. My view is coming in as an outsider, I will not just listen to my generals. I think it is the job of the commander-in-chief to bring an independent vision that restores true purpose to our military. And to me, the top person of purpose of the U.S. military ought to be to protect and defend the homeland, to advance American interests, to deter wars, and when necessary, to win wars. That is how we advance our interests in this country. So you, you had travel hiccup and you still made it. You're away from your, your wife and kids. You're on the campaign trail. I can't thank you enough for some, spending some time with us today. Um, as I said, and I mean it, I, I sent you the note on Twitter last night, the, the number of people who have come up to me who were stunned and excited that you were going to be here. You, you have certainly kept caught some lightning in a bottle on the campaign trail. So best of luck to you and thank you for coming. Can I say one yeah, thing yeah, in yeah, closing? Yeah. I just want to say one thing in closing to you guys is that I want to thank you for what he just said. It takes a lot to see a new guy who you hadn't heard of six months ago and to have an open mind and to take seriously enough the responsibility of choosing our next leader of our country. And you know, just what I wanted to say in, in closing to you is to speak to you for a minute as a member of my generation. I'm seeing you know, an audience of every generation in the audience, and that's good. I, I want to speak to you as a member of mine. I think the problem in our country is that for too long, people like me, my age, have been taught to celebrate our diversity and our differences so much that we forgot all of the ways we are really just the same as Americans, bound by a common set of ideals. And I just want to leave you with an optimistic note. It's not a fake optimism. I see the problems you do. But the truth is, I believe it deep in my bones that those ideals still exist. We're just going to have to do the hard work of reviving them. E pluribus unum means from many, one. That won us the American Revolution. And I think that is what is going to win us the revolution of 2024. Thank you guys for welcoming me. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, man. Really appreciate it. Travel safe. Thank you, Dan. Absolutely. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.